Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And what a week. Well, every week you say, what a week. Uh, These days, politics is wild and has been for some time. The resignation of two cabinet ministers, one supposedly at the heart of the Brexit negotiation, David Davis, though he had ceased to be for many reasons, and of course, Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary. I want to begin my reflections on this week of epic, thrilling politics, further proof that uh, Brexit is the equivalent of a Netflix box set where no one knows the ending, including the leading players, by going back a bit to the first year of the coalition government. It will all interconnect. I haven't gone completely crazy, only mildly so, uh, with Brexit fever. And look at the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which the coalition passed in that first year of frenzied, shallow change. At the time, all the commentators, and we get everything wrong, were saying, isn't this a period of remarkable political maturity, two parties coming together in the national interest and behaving with admirable moderation as they embark on the task ahead. It was completely the opposite. Uh, They moved in and went for it with a revolutionary zeal. The austerity economic policies, the misjudged soaring increase in tuition fees, the consequences of which are still being played out. And of course, in amongst these things, the fragmentation of the health service with the NHS white paper that was then paused and then revisited in a different form. In amongst all of that was that fixed-term Parliament Act, done for two reasons. One, wholly superficial, and that was Cameron and Osborne's desire to make sure that they could hold on to power in a fragile House of Commons for five years, and the Lib Dems' more principled belief that a Prime Minister shouldn't have sole power to call an election. But this was as ill thought through as all the other reforms that were rushed through in a period when they behave with much more zeal than the timid, cautious New Labour era where the governments had a majority of over 150, 160, I think it was 180 for the first one, where they behaved as if they were in creaky hung parliament where they could fall at any time. And that fixed term Parliament Act has a big impact on the current situation because my reading as things stand with Brexit is, now of course this could change, but it seems to me that Theresa May's deal, as defined by Chequers and the White Paper, does not command a majority in the House of Commons and it's quite hard to see how she turns that round. I know number 10 are wooing Labour MPs and an important shift of dynamic. The dynamics of Brexit have changed in the House of Commons. Up until Monday, Theresa May had tried assiduously to woo hardline Brexiteers and they had wooed her. People like Bernard Jenkin and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who uses politeness as a political weapon, and I say that as praise because it is a revelation to me how 
powerful politeness is in politics, it should be obvious, but he can say the most bland or outrageous things, but he does it so politely. And up until Monday, and maybe even now, he will say things like, I have great faith in the Prime Minister to deliver uh, the Brexit that was in the Conservative Party manifesto. Well, he is turning on her. So is Bernard Jenkin, previously very loyal to her. And she has challenged them. She uttered in the House of Commons in that dramatic statement on Monday in the opening couple of sentences that she disagreed. She had no choice but to say it. She disagreed with her right honourable friends, the Foreign Secretary and Brexit Secretary, as were, in relation to Brexit. And she has started to try and woo Labour MPs. Because as ever in politics, it's the arithmetic. But those Labour MPs seem they aren't united on much to do with Brexit, but all, with perhaps the exception of a handful, have so far been united for different reasons in their opposition to this proposal, the Chequers proposal. The Lib Dems will vote against, the SNP will vote against, so all the opposition parties, as things stand, will not back this deal. And in a hung parliament, and the context of all this is a hung parliament, it would only take a few Conservative MPs to vote against it for it to fall. As things stand, and she might be able to persuade a lot of them, that in the end they have no choice but to back this deal, because at the very least they realise the dream that has fueled their political careers since they were six months old of leaving the European Union will only be realised if they back it and maybe they will all come round. But these people are driven by purity and often unreality in their determination to achieve a distance with the European Union that is clearly defined and a clear break. And as things stand, I can't see all of them backing this deal. And anyway, it won't be this deal, because the European Union will not back it in full either. Inevitably, it will be watered down. And one of the many dangers for Theresa May, though I think her future is in some ways the least relevant bit of the sequence, although important, obviously, but it's just speculation. No one from Theresa May downwards knows what's going to be happening to Theresa May. But the framing of contingent support for Theresa May from some is this. All right, we don't like this, but we stick with you, Theresa May, as long as you don't, to quote the Daily Mail editorial, give another inch to the European Union. Well, she's going to be giving more than an inch in this negotiation if she wants a deal. That doesn't mean that the EU will be unyielding wholly. There will be compromises. The EU want a deal. But it won't be this one. What happens then? She might hope then that Labour comes round. But again, it's quite hard to see how Labour support this deal in any manifestation, which means this deal could fall. Some will then say, well, that's it. It's no deal. And those hardline Eurosceptics will have realised their dream as the economy falls off the cliff. But that too is hard to imagine happening because the House of Commons would stop it from happening. It, somehow or other, what happens after March of next year has to be backed by Parliament. You cannot have a 
move of such historic weight and significance without parliamentary backing. Bizarre as well, given that parliamentary sovereignty and a fantasy version of it is at the heart of the Brexiteers' case. So there is no majority for no deal. There may well be no majority for Theresa May's uh, set of propositions. What happens then? And some people think that inevitably a general election must follow such a phase of parliamentary paralysis. But it can't, and it won't, because of the fixed-term Parliament Act. One of the ironies of that Act is that when a government is imploding, the MPs belonging to that imploding governing party won't back an election. They're not going to go to the electorate saying, vote for us, we're strong and stable, as they're falling apart. And they know a government falling apart could not win an election. So it's not going to happen. It can't happen. The other irony of that silly act is that it's only when a government, to use that cliche, strong and stable, only when a government is strong and stable and popular, when an election therefore is wholly unnecessary, can one be held, which is what Theresa May did a year ago when she was 20 points ahead in the polls and was at the time the personification superficially of strength and stability. So this Fixed-Term Parliament Act is utterly absurd and constraining. When a government is imploding, there will be no election when one probably should be called. When a government is strong and popular, there can be one. So there won't be. And it seems to me that the only profound shift that may well happen in the build-up to all of this is some kind of schism in the Conservative Party. If there is going to be a dramatic twist, it would be that rather than an election. There will have to come a point soon when Conservatives decide enough is enough. Theresa May will almost certainly be the fourth Tory Prime Minister in a row to be brought down by Europe. And that, in a way, is uh, the least uh, dramatic element of the party's obsession with Europe and the internal divisions that have almost defined it, basically since um, the late 1980s. The more profound one is this, that the UK tends to elect one way or another Conservative governments. One way or another, again, forces come into play that make it very difficult for a Labour government, a millimetre to the left of um, Tony Blair and David Cameron, to get elected. So Conservative governments, in a way that's quite extraordinary when you think about it, they've been in charge since um, 2010, and of course prior to that from 1979 to 1997. So Britain tends to be elected by this party that is in constant turmoil over Europe. And it is deeply damaging to a country to be ruled in this way. We look at Italy sometimes with horror. We look at uh, Greece and wonder how they are going to square the impossible circles of their membership of the euro and the economic policies that arise from it. But the UK is alone in having this governing party that, with the support of the media and all the other establishment bodies, usually gets elected one way or another, in such torment over Europe. So perhaps a cathartic schism 
would be um, healthy for the UK too, although which bit of this governing party continued to govern? A kind of hardline nationalist, kind of echoes of UKIP party, uh, led by one of the hardline Brexiteers, or, and this would be a big, big improvement to British democracy, some kind of Christian Democrat centre-right party emerging remains to be seen. There would be possibly a division on the right, but I suspect that uh, hardline Brexiteer party would attract some Labour voters as well. It would be a moment of great change in British politics, but something has to give. Because this Brexit internal turmoil won't end in March if Britain leaves in whatever form it leaves. It will continue. And of course, the narrative is already in place that if only we had a better Brexit from a more determined visionary prime minister, we could be moving towards the paradise of the Brexiteers' fantasies. And that will be their argument if the economy shudders with whatever form of provisional Brexit that takes place in March. So the internal dispute in the Conservative Party is scheduled to continue for at least another 10 years. But as this was quite obvious in, say, the build-up to the 2015 election, when the Conservatives had that offer of a referendum in their manifesto, and all the newspapers, which even though no one buys them these days, continues to have influence, nearly all of them, said in their final eve of poll leaders that it was necessary for them to endorse the Conservatives in order to guarantee stability for the country. Given that that was the case then, I think uh, even with all this turmoil, you have to work on the assumption that the UK largely will be ruled by this party in some manifestation or other. So that's more likely, if anything, who knows, maybe it'll all just carry on as before. It's not entirely clear what happens at the next junction, which is when the European Union come back with its responses to the white paper. That's a moment of uh, big calls for them. But as things stand again, the sort of public mutterings suggest they are unwilling to give a kind of pick and mix to access to the single market, different arrangements for goods compared with services, and have doubts about this convoluted bureaucratic way in which the soft border in Ireland is protected by the UK collecting the tariffs for the European Union, becoming a sort of bureaucratic collector. Uh, it, is, it is a contorted package. Uh, I think it is well-intentioned. I think Theresa May has reached the conclusion that this is the only way forward with total sincerity. And it's interesting to reflect on when she changed and why she changed. Because I think she has misread her position and context uh, badly. When she first became Prime Minister, she was quite strong. You don't become Prime Minister and immediately become weak. And she was well ahead in the opinion polls, which is a form of strength in itself in British politics. And it was at that point that she chose to be trapped, to woo the Brexiteers. No doubt she meant it as well, influenced by her then advisor, Nick Timothy, by laying down these red lines 
but then accompanied by a series of contradictory aspirations about access to the EU markets and a soft border in Ireland. And I think it is the combination of pressure from businesses such as Airbus and the commitment that both sides had to make in December to a soft border in Ireland that has brought about a change in her approach along with the expediency of people like Ollie Robin saying this is it. There is no other way in which a negotiation can begin with the European Union along the lines that the hardliners want. The hardliners almost realise that, but they cannot let go of their dream. So they cling to unreality as she navigates the hard grind of reality, having made big, big mistakes uh, when she was kind of occupying a fantasy world early on in her leadership when she had no need to do so. Now she is weak or in a weak position. She is making these compromises and becoming expedient, but it's the wrong moment. The sequence could have been different. So, as I said at the beginning, it's the Netflix plot of all plots where no one knows the ending. There will be moments of relative calm, followed by further eruptions. But that has been the pattern in British politics for a long time now, basically since the crash. The coalition itself was a freakish outcome of the 2010 election. British politics doesn't usually elect coalitions. The two referendums we had, the one in Scotland, the Brexit referendum, were further weird manifestations of deep, unruly tides underneath British politics and politics elsewhere. The surprise win of Cameron in 2015, his departure a year later, wholly unprecedented in politics, to win a majority and then disappear a year later, almost literally disappear into a posh shed to write memoirs with a degree of effort, I suspect. And the early election last year was another sign of it. Uh, the election itself, it's, uh, it's an unruly thing to break with patterns and call an early election in Britain, and then to lose a majority as you do it. And of course, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn is a whole other element to the dramatic storms of British politics. So there will be the odd lull when people say, oh, isn't it interesting, things we thought the whole thing was going to fall apart and now things seem to have calmed down a little. And Theresa May might even have merged stronger. It's a cliche kind of coming out at the moment. And then there will be another eruption because that is the pattern and will be for some time to come. Uh, which I must say, I've got to always remember this, that that's why I'm going to do a different show one way or another at the Edinburgh Festival. And you can get tickets for that, Rock and Roll Politics, new show for 2018, or actually there's going to be loads of new shows at the Edinburgh Fringe box office. But thank you for listening, and let's see where we are next week. Next week.